0: Welcome members, visitors, and friends. So happy to have you join us for this podcast and The Church Said, where we discuss issues and insights on how the body and the members can interact in ways that promote spiritual, mental, emotional, and relational well-being. I am Dr. Monique smith Gatson, your host for this podcast. I am also a licensed clinician. However, this podcast is not intended to serve as therapy. We encourage you to engage in your own personal counseling. So come on in because the doors are open and take a seat on any pew you choose. We hope your time here will leave you declaring a hearty and resounding amen. So hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us on today. And I just wanted to take a moment to... Thank you all for listening to this podcast. For those of you who continue to listen and download and share and leave a comment and donate and encourage and allow me to know that I'm not just speaking into the cyberspace um, and my voice is just reverberating out there in nothingness and with no one. I appreciate those of you who continue to let me know. But you're listening to the podcast and you're also sharing the episode with others I'm, I'm so appreciative I don't know if I've stopped and formally said thank you in a in a minute so I just wanted to to take time today as we are in this season of gratitude although as if you've listened to me you know I believe just uh, a gratitude is a discipline not necessarily a season right we should always practice gratitude and being grateful nevertheless keep myself on track I did want to stop and just say thank you. And yes, we are in the season of sometimes where we formally recognize gratitude, thanksgiving is coming upon us. So thank you. I am giving thanks for you to the one above, to the Lord, to my father, the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm just grateful. Really, really, really grateful for you all. So so thank you so very much for being a part of um, this podcast. And I'm going to get myself together because when I think about it, it does, it floods me with emotions. And I am, I'm truly, truly grateful. As I've said so many times before, this has been an act of obedience. Um, I don't know if it would have necessarily had been something I would have chosen on my own, On my own, but I am um, seeking to be obedient to what I have since then, um, believed to be an instruction from the Lord. So that's that. And sorry if my voice is a little raspy sounding today. It's you know <laughs> weather is um, fluctuating and that tends to have an impact so, on me. So if it's if I sound a little different and raspy, your um, is probably due to that. So disclaimer. <laughs> All right. Well, y'all, I am happy to have y'all here with me today. And last week, I shared this conversation that I held with some graduate students. We were discussing victims of abuse and how the church can handle or mishandle such individuals. And i mentioned to you all that the question was asked of me, like, what do we do when the church or the members of the body tries to rush um, or suggest to individuals of psychological individuals who are victims of psychological abuse when when the church members try to rush them toward this place of forgiveness, especially to the perpetrators of their abuse and their harm. And so I talked about that last week. And in that episode, I reviewed some of my thoughts as to why I think we should wait upon the direction from the Holy Spirit. I shared why I think we need to be equipped for this specific work of the ministry in order for us to be effective witnesses as the church for Jesus. I just don't believe that anybody and everybody ought to just kind of dive into this work without a proper training, a proper discipling, if you will, into this specific area of ministry. So today I'm going to briefly talk about ministering to the one who has perpetrated abuse especially psychological, because remember, I've been talking about psychological abuse for quite some time here. Um, But we want to talk about how we minister to the one who has perpetrated abuse on another. And so last week, as I said to the students, one of my reflections from over the years of being immersed in the work of the church At this intersection of faith and mental health, I've just observed that it is easier to preach this forgiveness of sins, which of course is the message of the cross. So I'm not minimizing that. I am not uh, downplaying that or even doing away with that. I just think that is easier for us to say, you know, you're forgiven of your sins. And it is easier to subject an individual to a redemptive process than it is to get in the murky of the suffering with those who are also suffering. And i was saying that specifically for the victims of abuse. But those perpetrator abuse are sufferers as well. They they are um, in in some some ways. They they really are suffering. And I I believe that once they come to this recognition of who they have been, then that suffering can intensify. Recognizing who they have been to others and how they have um, adversely impacted other people's lives, yeah, they can be they can suffer. Um, however, just as much as we need to consider and implement the discipline of waiting before we minister and witness to the victims of psychological abuse i believe we must apply the same lens to those who have also perpetrated the abuse now i have spoken at length about the church being an educational refuge from psycho, or yeah an educational re, re, refuge from psychological abuse and i've meditated on this verse from psalm 46:1 god is our refuge and our strength a helper who was always found in times of trouble? And what does it mean for the church to be this refuge and a source of strength to those who are victims of psychological abuse? I've talked about that at length. But now we also need to consider what does it mean for the church to be an educational refuge for the perpetrators of psychological abuse? And I also really think thoroughly, we need to think thoroughly about how to minister in such a way that we are effective witnesses for the church. What does this look like to the perpetrators of such abuse? Now, we so often get so hung up on, you know, saying these parts of scripture, like when Jesus says, go and sin no more to the one who was caught in the very act (laughs) I'm <laughs> not going to get into that because that sits me on such tangents. But there are the words of Jesus is to go and sin no more. And we don't talk about like, what does that go part look like? Like when you go, what do you need to do in your going? Um, Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that. We say your sins are forgiven, which they are. If one is truly confessing with a repentant heart, yes, indeed, your sins are forgiven. Um, and we say that God has forgotten your sins. We use that Psalm 103, I think, verse 12, so that people can move in that liberty. Like, you know, God has forgotten. And all of these things are true. All of these things that I'm saying in part are True. What I'm saying in part, meaning like not in part, they are true. I am saying things in part. I'm not giving you the whole verse of scripture. So I'm saying these things in part, but those parts of scripture, all of these things are true. And as I said last week, we are Christians. We do, we abide by the full counsel of the scripture. So our sins are forgiven. God's word does say he will remove them as far as the east is from the west and yet those who bear the image of god might not quite be there especially those image bearers who have been abused they may not quite be there wanting to believe that this person's sins are forgiven or that the that god has forgotten especially when the victim of abuse has it forgotten? What does that mean to them that God has forgotten? So many times that can be interpreted to mean, what has God forgotten me? So I think we need to offer some direction and some guidance and some discipleship in this area specifically. And so to kind of start off this conversation, I just want to revisit the word refuge and how it is defined in the Hebrew. Refuge in the Hebrew is intended to convey hope, place of refuge, shelter, or trust. It is defined as a refuge or a shelter from rain or storm, from danger or falsehood. So again, I am going to apply my thinking that we must be trained and equipped on how to offer even this sense of refuge to those who perpetrate abuse. We need to wait and we need to cultivate strategic wisdom as we seek to be effective witnesses through the the church and again for Jesus. So first of all, one of my points is going to be that the perpetrators of abuse need to understand how they have been abusive and why. They need to come to understand this. And yes, if that means going to therapy, then let's strongly suggest that they need to get to therapy because some of those factors more than likely need to be handled by a trained and a licensed clinician. And, you know, side note, This is why I think there needs to be a line item on the church's budget or in the church's budget to assist some of the members with the investment in their mental health. Because sometimes to do that work, to understand how I have become an abusive individual, it requires counseling. It's probably gonna require them to have to face some experiences in their lives and some parts of their lived experiences that they would prefer to forget or probably have tried to repress. And those things are probably what are spilling out on others. However, that is the path toward healing. So we need to help them to understand that they need to understand how they have been abusive and why. They also need to understand that cycle of abuse that I talked about. I'm sorry, didn't even grab that episode number for you, (laughs) but I talked about the cycle of abuse and they themselves need to understand that. They need to understand what is happening in their bodies when they become so dysregulated that they are abusive. They need to take ownership of those feelings and those behaviors. And they need to be able to identify when they have gaslighted their victims and when they have scapegoated them. Like they need to understand this as they prepare to, um, to, to take into this, this concept of the church being a refuge even for them. They must take ownership of those feelings and those behaviors. And another thing for us to consider is that in their zeal of realizing that they have been forgiven and, you know, like made new, this is the language that we use, you know, in church. And I'm not, again, diminishing that, Um, not saying that disparagingly, because, yes, (laughs) these are the words that we can take, like, straight from the word itself. But in that zeal, when they realize, like, oh, I have I've been made I've been made new, I've been forgiven. They they may want to kind of rush to say, "Hey, I'm sorry, you know, for what I've done to you, and will you forgive me?" And they need to understand that just because they want to offer their apologies and ask for forgiveness, the victims of their harm and abuse May not want to see them, may not want to hear from them, may not even want to consider accepting an apology or even having to extend forgiveness. And so that needs to be talked about in terms of discipling the perpetrator of an abuse. They need to understand this. Like, I get that you're, you're, you have zeal, you're excited, you're, you know, euphoric because of this newfound realization and revival that is taking place in yourself. And also you have to understand that the other person, the person who you have harmed may not be ready to see you, deal with you, hear anything from you and to accept your apology and extend any acts of I forgive you. They need to understand That those who have been harmed cannot readily, and hear me say, even if ever, accept apologies and extend that forgiveness. And one thing that we have to think about is because within that cycle of abuse, the apologies offered previously were 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 often laden with blaming and followed with more abuse. So. That's why it might be hard for the victims to say, oh, okay, because they have received time and time again these apologies that have been met with more abuse. And so in their bodies, to even hear this apology, their bodies are saying, nope, 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 nope. We know, like this is not safe for us. And so the perpetrators of abuse need to understand that. And they also need to understand that if that begins to trigger feelings of anger within them, especially again toward the victim, they need to be reminded that that's not the proper response. Now we get it it is a response, it's your response, but that's not the proper response that suggests that there is work for you to continue to do. How are you going to be angry with the person that you have abused when they don't want to accept your apology? And so, because we talk about anger being a secondary emotion so many times, it's usually blanketing another emotion. And sometimes that is like a sadness or an anger. I mean, I'm sorry, a sadness or feelings of guilt and or shame. Now, hear me say, feelings of guilt are appropriate when a doing has been committed. So if we kind of peel back the anger and say, you know, is it because you're realizing that you're feeling guilty and you don't know what to do with the guilt, which is an appropriate response. It's an appropriate emotion. So many times we want to like do away with the guilt. It's like, no, if the guilt is there because they have done wrong, then we should be glad. Like, good, I'm glad you feel guilty that you have done wrong. We need for that guilt to be to do its work in a person's life. And, and and the work may be that, okay, I have to say I feel guilty because this is what I did. And, and if I am in this discipleship um, portion of coming to this realization, I have to recognize that I have to give space for this guilt to work the redemptive desire Because it guides me right back to the work of Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. Like we don't get rid of the guilt. We say, yes, guilt is appropriate response for doing something wrong. Now you take that guilt right back to Jesus who died on the cross for you because of your sins. But we don't talk about that. We want to kind of wash over that guilt. And even those feelings of shame, the shame has to do with, you know, I I feel bad about who I am. Now, again, so many times we try to rush and and pull that away from a person, but we also need to allow them to relate to that shame. And they say, yeah, I, I really feel bad about who I am or who I was when I would do these things. And we, again, let the shame be a part of the redemptive process. Like, this is why Jesus died for you. When we do feel bad about ourselves, about the things that we have done, when we are guilty because we have committed, you know, um, wrongdoings in the lives of others. Yes, but this is why Jesus came. So we have to allow those feelings to do the work of pointing people to that redemptive process, pointing them right back to Jesus. So we have to help them to understand why an individual might not want to forgive them, might not want to hear their apologies, how it has been part of the abuse because it's been followed by more abuse, Checking to see what kind of emotional response does the perpetrator have in those moments. And that suggests to us whether or not there's more work that needs to be done. Well, I would say there's a continuous work that needs to be done, but helping them to understand That anger is probably one of the parts of you having been the perpetrator of abuse that you have yet to recognize and contend with. And so now here you are, and this is what we need to do. What is that anger really saying to you? What could it be covering up for you and really getting to the heart of the matter? Okay, the perpetrators have to also recognize how they move about in the church, especially if the victim is in that same church setting. So I'm kind of thinking maybe sometimes like of couples maybe who have been dating or couples who were once upon a time married or even friends. I mean, psychological abuse can take place between Um, leaders and and um, members of a group or an organization or a church even for that matter so sometimes these individuals may find themselves still moving about in the same space so perpetrators need to recognize how they move about the church especially if the victim is still there so again let's address the culture the culture will say it's all about me The culture has this toxic positivity factor. Yes, it does. And I said it and I have said it before and I will continue to say it. Where everything is always all good and it should be always positive. And that can delude folks into believing that there are no amends that have to be made. And that is so far from the truth. And it just is. If the perpetrators of abuse are in the same setting, then we need to talk to them about what do you do if you end up in the same small group setting with the victim? What if you realize you're sitting a few pews behind that person in the Sunday service? What do you do? You have to have a mindset that I have to repair And sometimes we have to say to the perpetrators of of abuse, like sometimes this is for the long haul. This may be months and years and decades even. You have to have the mindset of repairing. You may have to recognize how much space you took up in someone else's life. The harm that had been inflicted upon that person by you. And you may need to be the one to send the signal that you're going to step back and allow the person to have the space without the intrusion of your presence. Now, we know paths are going to cross sometimes, especially depending on how small and intimate the setting may be. And also you can send a message that you are not trying to be intrusive. Now, if you're going in deliberately sitting around the person or you know that they're in a specific Sunday school class, a small group ministry, or you know that they go and serve here on this particular day and you're showing up intentionally, then I'm going to question whether or not you're not still um, exhibiting some of those abusive characteristics. Stalking. Yeah, there has to be this mindset. You have to recognize that victims have to learn to set boundaries and they have to enforce these boundaries. And so we have to disciple the perpetrators of abuse by saying, you need to recognize someone's boundaries. You need to recognize the space that you have taken up in their lives and you need to recognize that there may be more times than not. You may have to be the one to say, I am not going to intrude here because I have already intruded upon this person's life so much. I've taken so much from this person's life. And I think that that needs to be a point of discipleship for those who have been abusive. And so along with that, I think that there also needs to be a mediator. There needs to be a person who is doing this discipling. Again, if these two are in the same church setting, that will send the message, that will be the messenger if ever there is a message that wants to be communicated. The perpetrator by no means should take it upon him or herself to say, I want to go over and say, I'm sorry. Or I just want to say, hello. I want to just say how nice you're looking. Absolutely not. No communication. No, that is harmful. That is triggering. You need to send the message. If you wanted to say, I really just want this person to know how sorry I am. You tell it to another individual. Maybe that message will get communicated. Maybe they will tell you, you still need to wait. It's too soon. We don't want to trigger. We don't want to set a person back but by no means do you have any interactions with the individual that you harmed. You need to understand this. If you don't, then there may have to be other conversations that take place. But if they truly want to be discipled, they truly want to believe that this church can be a refuge, even for me, they have to follow maybe some of these thoughts in order for them to be a part of the refuge of the, the sense that God is their refuge, just as much as He is the refuge of those that they have victimized. But it looks differently. It looks differently. So we have to be sensitive to the timing of when to communicate messages to the victim, even if at all. So when we are discipling and equipping people to work with those who have perpetrated abuse, these are one of the thoughts that we need to put in the minds, to guide, to consider. And finally, um, perpetrators need to understand, as I have already kind of alluded to, that there will be some long-term effects. There very well may be long-term effects. I just said, this thing can go on for years. It can go on for decades because it takes a long time. It takes a lot of work for the victims to really be able to overcome and deal with all of those um, effects of that abuse, especially dependent on how long it's been. If it's complex trauma, then it takes a long time to recover from complex traumas. And so we have to help them to deal with the long-term effects of their actions. We have to help them to understand there are consequences to your actions. Sometimes these things are not mocked up immediately. And we have to equip you with resources. Either they need to be external, again, like counseling or some groups, some support groups. And they have to be internal. That will help them to regulate And to not default back to the old patterns of being and doing. Because they may become dysregulated and not know what to do. So we have to go ahead and say, this might be a long journey, friend. It's okay. We're here with you. We're not going to abandon you. The Lord has not abandoned you. But we just want you to be mindful of what your journey in this redemption looks like, maybe compared to the person who was victimized. So these are some ways that I see the church being the refuge for those who have perpetrated abuse. And when we again go back to that definition of refuge about shielding from the danger of of falsehoods, I, I believe that we help the perpetrators of abuse To be shielded against the falsehoods that the enemy can place in their minds. Because the enemy can send messages like, see, they don't really love you. They keep holding this offense over your head. They won't let it go. They keep telling you, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. You should be able to go and come as you please if you are a member of this church family. You know how subtle our enemy is? planting these thoughts in the minds of a perpetrator. So I believe that the danger for those who have perpetrated abuse, that they can believe that like with a snap of the fingers that they are changed from all of their old patterns. Now, I do believe in the miraculous. I do believe in the divine, you know, interruption in a person's life where they woke up and they were like, from that day forward, I didn't do this again. that's great. And also we have to make sure that we communicate that there is a journey. You can be declared that all things have been made new. You can be declared that you have been forgiven of your sins and there is still a path that has to be taken. There's an alignment every day that has to be taken to, to agree with that declaration in your life. So you can't get a declaration like, you know, I believe God has told me that I've been made anew, and you still default to doing your old habits. Mm, Something is incongruent there. So every day, we have to live in alignment with the declaration that God has forgiven us, that we are new creatures. So, we have to be a refuge to help them to understand this, that it is a journey. It requires you to do some things differently. And whereas you may think that your liberty looks like you can do all of the things that you used to do, but as this quote unquote new creature, we may have to help them to understand that is not necessarily the case. So, again, these are a few of my insights on how I have kind of thought through this over the years. And I have talked with individuals that inhabited the same space. I've had this situation a couple of times over the years. So as I close, as we seek God for the strategy and the wisdom on being effective witnesses as the church, we look to Jesus as we always do in all things. And I'm thinking of how he interacted with Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Remember that Zacchaeus was up in the tree because he was short. (laughs) He knew Jesus was going to pass this way. So he wanted to see Jesus, and he probably didn't expect that Jesus was going to see him also. But Jesus did. He looked up and he said, yeah, Zacchaeus, I need you to come down here quickly because I'm coming to stay in your house. Now the onlookers, you know the church folks, (laughs) started complaining and saying, he's going to stay with a sinner? You know, like we are not sinners. We're we somehow absolved from being sinners, but he's going to go stay with this sinner? But the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus was excited and he joyfully received Jesus. Not only did he joyfully receive Jesus, the scripture says that he confessed to his wrongdoings. Like, I, you know, I've done some people some wrong here and I'm going to plan To repair the wrong that I have done. And I believe that that's what the church has to do to effectively witness for Jesus. When we discern the working of the Holy Spirit and when individuals realize they have been seen by Jesus and they are receiving Jesus, we need to be equipped. We need to be trained on what to do next when they confess their wrongdoings and they offer a plan of reparation. We don't have to shun. We don't have to condemn. But we do have to hold them accountable. We disciple them. And we have to understand that discipleship doesn't always mean the good feelings. Doesn't always mean you're going to feel good about what we have to say in an effort to disciple you. But we'll stay with you. So again, this is my prayer. That it is a fruit of having We waited on the Holy Spirit to perform a work within me, along with these years of formal training and various models of integration. We also need to establish that level of safety and security via the relationship with someone who has been an abuser just as much as we have to do the same for a person who has been abused. And we have to remember that in both instances, it takes time. And so this is why, again, it's really important for us to wait on the Holy Spirit and to be equipped for the work of the ministry. What does it mean for the church to be a refuge for those who have been a perpetrator of abuse? That's my call. What will be your response? And the church said